Hello, Henrietta. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the Conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galina. And uh, this week, Henrietta, we are going to talk about American fashion. Well, we talk a, a lot about American fashion, but we are going to focus on American fashion designers. And essentially, our question is, what happened <laughs> to <laughs> what happened to the next generation of American fashion designers? Yes, in a way that is slightly different to how we positioned it in the last season. I think this is definitely spurred on by the closure of multiple brands and designers showing up shop most recently. And I feel like most heavily promoted was Zach Posen. Was Zach Posen. And mm-hmm. I have to tell you, I think Zach Posen's demise, and I, I think I may have spoken about it in a, a couple podcasts ago, at least just a, just a mention, but I think that Zach Posen's demise is a significant turning point in this business. I think uh, Zach Posen was poised to be the next sort of like king of American uh, fashion designers in the in the sort of tradition of the Ralph Lauren's, the Calvin Klein, the Bill Blass, and that sort of thing, the, the, the Michael Kors. I think he was really representative of someone significant. Yes, his, his sensibility was American in that sort of Bill Blass kind of way, but I, his identity generally as a New Yorker, literally born and bred in New York and like cut his teeth here, worked for all, worked for those designers that preceded him, those American designers that preceded him. He was really, really, really poised and as well, championed by Vogue for the last uh, two decades. He was the first uh, CFDA award winner. And so he has tremendous, tremendous tradition and uh, and forecast for being, you know, the, the future of American fashion, at least one of the players. And then it wasn't to be. And of course, we'll list the 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 long laundry list of other other brands that have failed in these in the recent years. But I think that his his failure is huge. And I also think that people not speaking about it with the significance that it represents also is very telling. I think if you were to underscore that demise with with the significance that it deserves, I think it may be a bit alarming for the general population, surely, and the industry as a whole. I, he's actually really talented. He's probably one of the few American designers that really could almost get away with that title as a couturier. Um, just his ability, like tailoring, draping, like he is an incredible talent. So yeah, everything you just mentioned and, and that I think is is really surprising. But also it's not really, because if I'm perfectly honest, when I saw the headlines, I was like, oh, I thought he wasn't in business. Like I thought he just designed red carpet dresses and you was on TV. You said but that it, to me. I was surprised. He was like a TV. Wasn't he on like Project Runway? Yes. And, and when you know when you're on a show like Project Runway, like Michael Kors was in the last. But decade. in a different way. Like where have you ever? Uh, honestly, apart from the red carpet, which I don't know, designers like Isaac Mizrahi are still designing for the red carpet. That feels very much relationship driven and marketing based. Where I've never seen Zach Posen in a, in a retailer. I've never seen him on the streets. I've never seen anyone tell me that they're wearing Zach Posen anything. So I, he wasn't part of the... The ready-to-wear tradition, He let's just say, wasn't but... part of the fashion fabric. 
And so that just leads me to believe that a lot of these designers, particularly Zach Posen, just struggle to keep up and stay relevant. I mean, no, no one was really talking about him in the way in which we're dressing today. So isn't that well, you know largely what, you due know what, to... That, that observation is interesting because, you know, I followed Zach Posen on Instagram and I he was very prolific in in putting out videos and images and so forth. So I was seeing just a lot of activity. And and I also, you know, I'm, I know Zach and I know I know the brand and I do see it in stores, understanding, of course, that he was in one of those brands that was selling T-shirts. Um, but, I, but I was very aware in how relevant he was and he was just very to the minute. But again, you know, post on Instagram, a business does not make. But I also don't see it that way because I think he's very much part of that old guard of fashion where you need to be anointed by Anna Winter. You have the celebrity friends. You're in the clique of all the editors who write about you. You're in the magazines, but you're not on the street and you're not selling clothes to the people that are going to keep you in business. Like he's very much part of that old guard of this is how fashion is structured and I'm playing that game. But he's not playing the new game, which is very much steeped in 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 culture and the consumer comes first in D2C practices in uh e-commerce and social media in a real way not in a because his I feel like his life on social media is very much about him being a personality which works for people like DVF Mark Jacobs and those sorts of other old school designers but they do have a other business component to it which I feel like he was somewhat lacking and I think that the big lesson in all of this is is relevancy because I know that you have a laundry list of designers that if they've not already suffered the same fate are going in that direction and when you gave me the list of designers I was literally like lack of relevancy not relevant no one's talking about them do they still exist surprise they're still in business like it's really a relevancy conversation well I think you touched on a on a key point here and that being the machine that has churned out these designers over, say, the last decade, decade to two decades, and there it, it's been it's been largely formulaic. Um, in many ways, it's been engineered by the by the Vogue machine. You know, the CFDA is obviously a, an important part of this machine. It has anointed said designers over the years, and they have been the one that has that you're what you're looking at to be catapulted to to the stratosphere. You know, Anna Wintour has has deemed them the next generation, and therefore, I think a lot of us have expected the storyline to follow as as it was written. But what we have come to to realize and what we've come to see is, in fact, that this storyline has been hugely flawed. And in fact, it begs the question, you know, does is this machine responsible or it helps to helps in the failure of these brands? Have they been set up to fail or or is there another theory here? Because I I, I got to list all of these brands. You know, we've spoken about Parental uh, Schuler before in this in this podcast. From what I know, that brand is hanging on a thread. It is barely barely on life support, and um, due to its um, sort of poor business uh, dealings in recent years, that being owned by multiple uh, venture capital firms and so on and so forth. Essentially, the the company is hanging by a thread. That that is what I've heard, and then other companies like um, Takoon that has gone the way of of, of a body bag, Oni Titel, Peter Som, 
Hood by Air, Richie Chai, Richard Chai, Public School, Tracy Reese, uh, Philip <laughs> Philip Lim. Is he if he is still around? There's so many brands. All most of the brands in the last ten years that were deemed to be the future of American fashion that has gone through this sort of Vogue machine, this CFDA fund have all largely failed. This formula of uh, associating to a celebrity and getting these glossy pages and turning up at the Met Ball, all of those things that, let's call it the Anna Wintour formula, I think we really have to look at the forensics of this and to, and to, and to ask the question, like, what, <laughs> what has this machine done in these recent times and to what end? You know, the, 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 the evidence is showing that failure is the end of these brands. And it's funny, you know, I've been looking at a brand like Supreme in this age. And, and actually not just the Supreme, like brands like Supreme, Tom Brown, The Row, Tory Burch. Those are brands that have largely, not to say that some of them have not been endorsed by Vogue, but they, not ha- they have not been led by Vogue. They have not been sort of beholden to Vogue. Tory Burch has led a relatively independent business. Tom Brown has been over to the side sort of doing what he wants. At least that's what it seems from the outside in. The Row has been gangsta in the way that they have done their business. And it's very evident and it's very clear that while they may appreciate their pages in Vogue, they are not beholden to Vogue to do their business, to run their business, to get their exposure. So I'm wondering, what have we all signed up for in this recent time as a formula for creating successful American fashion businesses? And what has happened to that formula? I find now in talking about it and looking at the forensics that it's kind of alarming what has happened. Well, yes and no. I mean, while I don't necessarily blame Vogue or Anna Winter specifically for the demise of these brands, yes, there is a Anna Winter strategy of you come through the CFDA or you're anointed by Vogue or Anna personally, and you're introduced to the editors and the, the other brands where you might be creative director or you sit on the panels or you are in the pages of the magazines, you're addressing celebrities, you're, and I, and, and from my understanding, um, actually from you, you were like, how did you not know this? She's incredibly controlling in terms of like, you will dress this celebrity, this will be your trajectory. You're not ready to dress her, but you can start with her Precisely. and put you in this page. And, <laughs> you know, it is a very highly choreographed, uh, strategy. Um, that said, I do think that it is also largely, and you could also say that this is from the creation of a Vogue or Anna Winter, it's largely an American fashion problem because the anomalies that you've just outlined follow a bit more of a European designer approach. Like all of those brands, Tory Burch, Tom Brown, The Row, they have a really good balance of ready-to-wear accessories. I mean, a lot of the European brands, which looking at coming from direct-to-consumer, working in that space now, I'm gobsmacked at how luxury, particularly European luxury, is literally printing money. Gucci, Bottega, Dior, Chanel, they're all making more money or have been making more money than they ever have done. And these products are insanely expensive. I mean, Dior is shelling out bags 
three to six thousand dollars and i don't know who has that money it's a question streetwear has gone the way of luxury like even if you look at off-white who's spending eight hundred dollars on these t-shirts so while fashion looks like it's in disarray like the customer has too many options and not enough money luxury is doing really well a lot of the time because it's buoyed up by accessories and fragrance and beauty that is probably the only thing that's keeping a mark jacobs in business but that's definitely where we are with Dior and Vuitton and Gucci, they have a really strong uh, fashion matrix that's allowing them to remain profitable. And you see that with the row. They have really great accessories. Everyone's wearing their footwear. Their bags are, they create, they have multiple it bags. I'm pretty sure they have a fragrance. If not, I'm sure they're going to do one and get into makeup. Same with Tom Brown, same with Tori Burch. I mean, the way she's diversified her business has been incredibly smart between the It Bags and Tori Burch Sport, all of her accessories. And so they follow a bit more of a European formula that I think allows them to remain profitable rather than following, an, as you say, like an Anna Winter strategy that is very one-dimensional and quite old school. Um, But those brands have also adopted very progressive and quite modern tactics as it pertains to wholesale and D2C and the way they're running their e-com, the way they're running their teams. And so I think it is partially, yes, Anna Winter Vogue's fault for building this infrastructure whereby it's kind of churned out these designers that have all or are all suffering the same fate. But I also feel like it's kind of their own faults as well, because if you are in 2019 and you're not thinking about your relevancy, like you had brought up Rag and Bone previously. Yes. And I mean, there's no reason why they aren't relevant. Like Rebecca Minkoff, there's no reason why she shouldn't be relevant. I mean, Rebecca Minkoff was the cornerstone of women's contemporary dressing at one point, I remember. And Rag and Bone were always on that streetwear vibe. The person or people to blame, I think, is themselves because if they allowed themselves to be so beholden to these one-dimensional strategies, when they technically were ahead of the curve, I mean, the idea of contemporary dressing for women, for work, for play, women supporting women, and Rebecca's a working mother, she supports other women, all of that stuff. It was on time. So I don't know why people aren't really on her. But do you think... I think that the economic driver in American fashion is also responsible for some of this demise in that we've been, we've just been driven by the economics, by economic development rather than creative ones. And then you run out of steam at some point and there's nowhere else to go after, particularly after you lose an identity. Let's be honest, like a rag and bone, maybe they lost their identity along the way and no one, you you didn't know what you were buying into any longer. It became, and at least that's something that I recognize with them. American brands, they seem to just kind of go down a road of creating products ultimately that sells and is not necessarily, you know, attributable to the brand, but it is, uh, it's the trend at the time and brands just sort of wax and wane with sensibilities. Yeah, that's true. There is an overarching and storied trend of American fashion to to follow an overarching trend rather than a brand DNA. Exactly. So even to the point of luxury, I was reading that Dior, for the first time in its history, ready-to-wear and accessories fragrance are about level, which is insane. I mean, she must... Sorry, Marie Gretzky Curie is making a lot of money. She's doing really, really well with ready-to-wear, which is surprising because I actually kind of think it sucks, if I'm honest. Mm. But she's going back to a lot of the codes of 
of Christian Dior. So that bar jacket is in every fabric and every iteration. And she's going back to a lot of those codes and apparently modernizing it. Um, But those things are anomalies, but also that just goes to show that Dior is really doubling down on what Dior does, what Dior stands for, how Dior can differ from a Gucci. Fair enough. And then you see that a lot of the brands, even if you compare to luxury, the brands that aren't really, to your point, really about anything other than churning out trends aren't doing well. Like if you look at Victoria Beckham, for instance, everything she puts out the runway is is derivative of something we've already seen seasons past. This season, she basically put Gucci down the runway. A couple seasons ago, she was literally putting the row down the runway. Before that, she was putting Phoebe Philo's Celine down the runway. She She's lacking in original thought, and I think it's showing on her bottom line. She's losing millions of dollars increasingly mm-hmm. every year mm-hmm. versus someone like a Gucci whose profits are really based on doubling down on a point of view that is distinctive and unique. So, yes, the lack of success in American fashion is the fact that there isn't really a point or a distinctive point of view. I mean, look at Calvin Klein, look at Rag and Bone, look at Public School. I mean, at this point, they're all putting out products where the labels could be interchangeable. 100%. Um, I guess in a way that a Tory Burch isn't, which I think is really impressive because even with Tory Burch, I remember always just being like, oh, she's so not caught. Like, that that Tory Burch girl, you know, you see her at Soul Cycle, you see you you see her on the subway with that bat. Like, there's an archetype of the Tory Burch girl. Yes. And I always used to kind of think it wasn't a great thing. And now I'm just like, that's it's, genius. It's genius because it's you, genius. Know what, you know what it is. Because you know what you're buying into. You and even if it's not for into. you, you know what it is you know when you see is. it. And so, yeah, I think standing for something is is really imperative for the bottom line. But it's really hard in a culture where people's try, people are trying to make money. So people are like, everyone's wearing sneakers. We will make sneakers. Everyone's wearing sweatshirts. We will make sweatshirts. And the reality is that it's, it's very hard to sell expensive clothes in this age, especially... But it actually isn't, which is my whole well, no, point about no, luxury. I, I disagree, no. I, it's it's hard to sell expensive clothes. It's not necessarily... It's easier for Dior to sell expensive clothes. It's easier for Gucci to sell expensive clothes because they have such a massive infrastructure. They're such a behemoth that they're able to message and promote and market from so many different platforms. Like, those are like... It's not just about... It's it, it, that's not easy. That's through That's through an incredible amount of output. But that's not true because brands that have money and a storied history aren't doing well. Like, look at, I mean, Michael Kors, look at Marc Jacobs. Like, these are all companies no, no, that too, have the means to do the same thing. And they're, they're absolutely propped up and doing absolutely fine. In the case of Marc Jacobs, because of this storied history and because he's able to sell perfumes and makeup. That's why he that's why he is in business. He's not selling expensive clothes. He's selling perfumes and makeup and it, 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 and 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 you're speaking about the row. The row is very successful with their clothing, but as you said, they also have to diversify and go into the categories of accessories of shoes and bags and so forth. But and they that's are, where they're finding their Mark Jacobs their Mark Jacobs is not a ready to wear business. Not, I think no. if you want to be honest. It um the row definitely ha- makes money on their clothing. Absolutely. Like, I don't know if you've been in that store, but they're selling silk slip dresses for $4,000. I'm, I'm one of their clients. I <laughs> they're selling, to, to they're selling the leather sliders for $3,800. Absolutely. There is definitely a market that is doing incredibly well, selling insanely expensive goods. But again, 
what what brands are we speaking about? And we're, you know, this conversation is about American fashion lines. And in many ways, in many cases, or in, in this instance, you've given examples of European brands with storied history who are able to, who are making more money than ever and are able to reinvent themselves in this era and have multiple product categories and so on and so forth. And you're absolutely right about that. But again, go back to the American, particularly the emerging, say, American fashion designers over the last 10 to 15 years. That's the fallout that we're talking about. And we have to talk about their business structure and why they have soared or not. The examples that we're giving here are the, the case of the row. And we have to we also have to bring in examples like Gabriella, Gabriella Hearst and even a Tom Ford, you know, even a Tom Ford that is able to still have a robust business through suiting and that sort of thing. And a Gabriella Hearst who has deep pockets and now have deeper pockets in LVMH. So you- Gabriella Hearst <laughs> is doing incredibly well, or at least seemingly is. And again, it's, it's very difficult to, I mean, unless you're really reading the trade publications where they have access to numbers, because a lot of the brands that we do speak of, they're publicly traded. So you, you're quite privy to a lot of the information. Right. Whereas I do feel like, like Gabriella Hearst for all intents and purposes is doing really well, even though she is selling you, $8,000 suits, yeah. right? And very expensive handbags. Um, the perception is she's doing really, really well, but that seems to be based on a wholesale business. So then I'm kind of questioning how well exactly. is she doing? But it is there is a lot of smokes and mirrors because I 100%. think that one of the things that was surprising about Zach Posen from other people, not me, is that people were surprised because they were just like, I just didn't think he's just such a staple in fashion. I didn't think he would go out of business. Like mm-hmm. someone was going to bail him out or there's something invisible that's buoying up his business or whatever. Well, you know, that's a good point. But it's all smokes and mirrors, very much like D2C, where the perception of everything being fine, I mean, a lot of these unicorn status D2C brands, a lot of them aren't even profitable. So there is a lot of smokes and mirrors. No one saw Zach Posen coming because he was living his best life and doing all the things that you talk about on social media. So when we talk about privately owned companies as well, I think a big part of the challenge with them is that you don't really see it coming. So there's no real sense of urgency because for every single person that was like, Zach Poser, the long Instagram posts, all the articles, all of the condolences, I'm like, yeah, but none of you were buying his shit. (laughs) So maybe if you saw this coming, like you might have bought a dress or two and he might have maybe survived this downturn. That's a good point. And it's uh, it's also telling to know that brands like Bonobos and Warby Parker are the American fashion success story as a sort of an adjacent thing to the, you know, to the Tory Burches of the world. But those are the success stories. And those are driven by economics, not by creativity. That, I feel that that those, that's a telling development in this age that, any designer that that uh, sort of entered this business with a creative point of view, they have all practically gone the way of because they're not able to level that creativity in its full in it you know in its full glory in this business over these years. I never really looked at it like that. I guess, yeah, I guess someone like a Zach Posen would really struggle to adapt to that model. I mean, Bonobos, Warby Parker, Everlane. Everlane. Those brands is largely based on convenience and not really fashion. It's based on this idea that you need these things and they'll be provided 
at the most efficient level possible. I mean, Warby Parker is very much ubiquitous looking glasses. They'll send you five, you pick one, they send it back, free shipping, free return, free exchange. It's all very, Bonobos is very much about once you've gone to the showroom, you know your size, every shirt's going to fit the same, all the shirts pretty much look the same. You rotate your wardrobe, Everlane, it's based on basics that are not crap for the environment. And so it's less of a creative endeavor. And these things are more about utilitarian use, which is the absolute antithesis of why a Zach Posen came into this space in the first place. His whole idea about fashion was based on, you know, he almost came onto the scene like a Galliano. It was it was okay. it was clothes that Fair not enough. only had a point of view, it had a story and a character and all the things that we don't talk about we anymore we don't dress like anymore right, but, but we but we we also have to recognize that stylistic shift and in in many ways we're 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 speaking about that in this conversation and we're trying to understand what the drivers are for either going down the economic lane or or for not going down a creative one but i i still think it's worth underscoring or worth noting just how all the fashion stories, because in many ways, let's be honest, you know, Calvin Klein in the last two decades have been defined by underwear and t-shirts, but yet is still a storied American fashion, you know, it's part of the American fashion story. Um, But in this age is the more utilitarian, as you say, companies, they're just entering on that, you know, Calvin Klein sort of evolve into that identity. These brands like Bonobos are starting out on Tucket. Those shirts, for example, are starting out with like a basic delivery. They're like, here is a shirt that we're going to iterate, you know, a million times over, or here's a pen that we're going to iterate a million times over. And this is what you want, but it is still fashion. And if you look on the streets of New York, this, I mean, look on the streets of the of the country, for that matter. This is what they're gravitated to. This is what they're wearing. These are the multi billion dollar companies in this age. So there is a there is an actual significant shift to the identity of what is what constitutes American fashion now, as banal and as basic as it yeah. may sound. Yeah, and I mean, you have addressed it as the the cult. What is it? The culture of casual dressing, oh, casual yes. culture. Yes, yes. And you've addressed your disdain for denim cutoffs, and that is where we are. I mean, now, you know, you see on the front row all the editors are wearing sneakers, and streetwear is so prevalent. And there is very much a streetwear utilitarian idea of dressing in America, particularly. Which another reason why I'm like, who are these dual customers? Like, who are these Gucci customers? Because I don't see them. <laughs> I see so, the Gucci ones. I see the Gucci ones. So I think that, but this is why I'm saying it really depends on your circles. Like, I don't feel like I work in fashion anymore. Like, I'm very much like I go to work and people legit wear their pajamas. So I feel like I'm in a very different space where I see this need for utilitarian dressing because really everyone's behind a screen or a device. So there is no need to really get dressed up in the same way, even when you work in fashion, if you work in marketing or anything that's not really public or consumer facing, you're in jeans and a sweatshirt. We've kind of turned as social media and the digital age has become so prevalent, we're now behind the screen and our avatars are more prevalent. So it's like you Mm. dress up for Instagram, (laughs) but you're uploading everything in your sweats. And so I think that that digital shift has definitely changed how we approach fashion as a, maybe as an American culture, where I feel like you still go to Paris and Milan, where the internet is still a little bit of, is perceived a little bit as a phase. 
And they're dressing up and they're dressing for dinner. And, you know, it, here it feels a bit like Upper East side to even get dressed for dinner. I, I think it's, I could see how that shift has happened in American fashion, where the demise of a Zach Posen is is a fairly obvious one. That being said, I do personally believe that each of these brands could have found a way to carve out a space for themselves based on all of the amazing things that these DTC brands don't have. I mean, DTC brands at the moment are struggling to acquire a customer. They're struggling to get, how do you get a celebrity to wear a t-shirt and identify it as yours? Mm -hmm. You know, they're struggling with a lot of the media placements and just some of the things that it takes to just be a fashion brand. So I would have thought they'd be able to leverage those elements to carve out some relevancy for themselves. Um, well, maybe, you know, maybe Zach will go the way of an Isaac Misrahi. You, and in, in in many ways, they had a similar ascendancy, Isaac That's was. what I'm saying. I'm like, wasn't he already there? Like, I thought he was just a fashion TV personality. Well, um, in, in the sense that Isaac had to reinvent himself or reinvented himself many times after his heyday of the early to mid-90s. I don't think you Zach know? Posen could do that. No, He's already course. done that. He has had many iterations of his... Yes, brand like Z been... spoke Zach for Zach Posen, <laughs> like all of these. There was like six other labels. Good point. Good point. <laughs> and and I I think it's done, but also he just seems tired. I think he's like I'm cute. But what about I'm the, still about, young. I'm just going to get a TV show. But what about a licensing deal at Kmart or JCPenney and just like, you know... Just... A licensing deal is largely predicated on people wanting your name. So, and no shade, but just no one wants a Zach Posen anything. So there's not much value in... I mean, the whole idea of licensing is that people out there value your name, but yes. you might not necessarily have the funds or the infrastructure to be able to facilitate that demand. So just put your name on it and we'll sell it. And Roll it out. I think the mo- that I keep saying it, but the largest reason for his demise is relevancy. So if his name isn't relevant, then there's no licensing deal. But Henrietta, where is there room for that optimistic American sportswear that... Um, that the American fashion industry was largely uh, defined by in these in these years. Is there is there room for that? Is a Brandon Maxwell is is he slated to be the next you know the next success story? Will he fare better than a Zach Posen uh, uh, did in, in in this past era? Where are we positioned? Is Americana is uh, American fashion still packageable and still sellable and still big business viable? Um, I think there is some optimism because, you know, there are really exciting designers. You mentioned Brandon Maxwell, Gabriella Hurst. The Row. The Row. Tom Brown. I have to say Tom Brown, his, his innovation <laughs> just continues yeah. to astound me. And even newer, newer, much newer designers like uh, uh, Christopher John Rogers. Yes. You know, yeah. so there is optimism there. I think part of the challenge is none of us know where this is going. So it's really about having these designers, these CEOs, these executives, these whoever is at the helm of these brands and and younger designers. It's really about their ability to navigate the space because you can project anything onto anyone. I mean, there is no reason why 15, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have thought that a Zach Posen wouldn't become a Mark Jacobs or a Michael Kors and a multi-billion dollar business. It's just about their ability to navigate the space. We don't really know where 
um, it's going. And I think that with all the hoo-ha around these DTC brands and these unicorn valuations, a lot of it smokes and mirrors. Like I said, a lot of these brands aren't profitable. I think there is going to be a saturation problem. I think there's going to be an investor problem. I think that a lot of these brands are going to be like converging to a point where there is going to be a pendulum swing back to like, but what do you really stand for? Like, I want to wear fashionable clothes again. I want a different point of view. So maybe a Zach Posen can make a comeback and maybe a Brandon Maxwell and these brands can reign supreme again. It's really hard to say. It's really based on their ability to be able to navigate it. And brands like Brandon Maxwell seem to be doing that really well. I mean, his last um, 2020 collection was largely separates, denim, very casual. And clean. (laughs) But it was incredibly casual. Like, when I saw more than one pair of jeans go down the runway, I was hugely surprised by his offering. And I think that that is a reaction to how more women are dressing in America, not just the few that he caters to with his suiting, his tailoring, his gowns. So he looks like he's trying to diversify. I think Gabriella Hurst, if she is smart, will look to um, not dumb down, but what's the word? She'll look to dilute, casualize, casualize her, her offering. You'll see a thousand dollar t-shirt in there. The row already, if you look at their last collection, it was very utilitarian. It was very wearable. It was shirting. It was t-shirts. But it was you know, simple pieces. You know what I'm thinking as you speak, though, Henrietta. You're not speaking with great confidence about. Do I ever on this podcast <laughs> ever? But to your point, you said we don't know where it's going. At least we may not have known where things were going 10 years ago, but there was such great pretense to still know, to still hold, to still um, having some sort of understanding to to where it's going. We've been pre- at least, I think, pretending all this time, but now you're at a point you're saying, we don't know. And that's part of the reason why this podcast came about because I'm like, no, we don't know. Now, isn't that so alarming? Shouldn't that be scary for everyone? Well, firstly, it's not alarming. I think once you actually are brave enough to say you don't know, then you can just navigate in real time and make smart decisions. I think the reason why 10 years ago, we did know largely because fashion hadn't changed. It was the same systems decade over decade. And we did know because people like Anna Winter and other gatekeepers told us what was going to happen. Like that is the large shift. Right. Anna Winter was like, this is this is your career path should you choose to take it. And you said yes or you said no and and you thrived or you didn't. And cut Whereas, to, well, cut to, <laughs> cut to what has happened, the, the massive fallout, this, you know, this great rise and massive fall. Now what? Because Anna can't save you because digital has made fashion way more democratic. Absolutely. That Anna Winter and her kind of clique of decision makers are no longer hold that power. So yes, you can be anointed by Anna Winter. Again, Christopher John Rogers is a perfect example of that. I hope he takes his $400,000 in mentoring and then uses it to craft his own path. So again, that's what I'm saying. If you have the wherewithal, the self-awareness and the due diligence to navigate in real time, there's a chance that these designers will succeed. I mean, Brandon Maxwell's largely anointed by celebrity culture and Anna Winter. They just have to have the wherewithal and the bravery to also say, yeah, but I could also do this and do that Mm. in a way of a Tory Burch or the Row, who are also anointed by these publications and these gatekeepers, but have also chosen to, 
you know, do things differently, hence their success. Absolutely. So I think that this idea that there is one track or one strategy or a handful of strategies in collaboration, it just isn't the case. And I think everyone's different and how everyone has to navigate their situation for them and not look to other brands or competition or it, it, it's it's a bit murky at the moment. Like even this idea of Dior doing really well, which I don't, I keep going on about because I'm so surprised because I don't love Marie Gretzky Curie at the helm of Dior. So I am surprised by how successful it is. But the one thing I will say for her and a Tory Burch, who again, I'm like, not for me, but I really do respect, is they picked a lane, they've carved it out, they've doubled down on an identity, a point of view, and they're about it. And so, you know, I think that there's something to be said for that because they're telling their audience, their consumer, what their point of view is. They're not basing a wishy-washy move with the wind point of view based on how their customers or or the customers they want to acquire addressing. And I think a lot of these brands are, to your point about a rag and bone, like what are they putting out? They're following trends. They're asking the audience to help them design collections and put it back out there. By the time the customers told them what they want, they've changed their mind. Whereas designers like a Brandon Maxwell or um, you know a Tory Burch, a Marie Grazia Curie, a Tom Brown, the row are like this is what we are thinking for the season. And so it's it's less dictatorial, like old school fashion was. This is what's cool. You'll all be wearing it. It's more, this is our point of view, but it's our point of view. And if you don't like it, you know, the row are like, you can go to Victoria Beckham, but this is what they're doing. And I think people really respect that. That's what Phoebe Philo did for Celine. And that's the one reason why I think, obviously, because she's insanely talented and a queen, but she was very uncompromising. She was like, this is what Celine is this season. And we all lapped it up. I think... Fashion well, we, is slightly hierarchical in that way. We can't ignore that, you know, a Celine was also is also under the umbrella of an LVMH and um and the resources that that kind of um and the True. liberties and the freedom. True, that, that but I'm I'm talking less about marketing you. and and the ability to create you know quality or whatever. I'm really talking about design point of view. Well, actually, design point of view, and I'll pause you on that. And one of the one of the themes that we speak about, um, or maybe I speak about a lot, is also size. You know, maybe the formula, maybe the goal for a lot of these companies over the last couple of decades have been, the, the dream has been too big. And now that we can't sort of manage and control the, the, the track that we take to, to big business success, maybe since that has shifted, uh, we need to look at businesses differently. We need to look at what a, a, a more boutique fashion house is. I feel like I push that message here. I don't yeah, want to be. You have. I don't want you to have. be and biased there, on that. But there is something to that. I mean, American fashion has largely been buoyed up by um, um, by wholesale. Wholesale and sort of big business view, massive expansion, sort of conquer this territory and then conquer the world kind of thing. That's what that's what we've been. That's the formula we've been living on. But again, I think it's a large, it's a relevancy problem. I mean, if you look at re- European brands, even their resale value. What's the resale value of a rag and bone piece? <laughs> Sorry, no shade. No, but, but what's the resale value of a Calvin Klein piece that isn't either designed by Calvin Klein or you're a huge Ralph Simmons fan? I think relevancy is a large challenge for the American fashion industry because it is economics first and everything second. Exactly. But your point on relevancy, and I, I'm, I'm feeling that this is a this is an episode that's germinating here, is that 
relevancy, brand recognition, that storyline started a very long, long time ago for the brands that that are, are successful or a lot of them that are successful in this age. It's been very generational and a lot of that has been passed on. I don't think it's an accident that the Chanel's, the Hermes, the Dior's, the Valentino's, the Gucci's, of the world, the Versace's and those kind of brands, the Bottega Veneta's, that those brands have, you know, 50 plus year histories. Like, I think, you know, it it speaks to the consumers, the consumer buying into what they know. And just even in the brand recognition, my parents knew what um, what Gucci was, and I know what Gucci is. And Gucci has also, uh, has always resonated uh, with luxury in mind. I think those kind of those kind of impact or the impact of brand recognition plays out hugely significant in this age. Balenciaga is also one of them. I don't think Balenciaga is successful because his name it made a name for itself in this era. That name has been traded on for over 50 years. So I, there's also that. Some things that you may not be able to buy into in short order, and American brands are at a deficit yeah, because you, they don't have that you history. You definitely have some adjacencies in America because Calvin Klein is a storied brand. Tommy, Ralph Lauren, Barney's... Bergdorf, like no, 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 you're talking about retailers. Let's stick to let's stick to fashion. Well, I'm just companies. talking about I'm just talking about name recognition and how they are. Yes, well, if you're going to take the conversation there, Bergdorf Goodman continues to be successful. And continues, Is there? I yes. thought they were not doing very well. well. They of all the, of any of the stores, they have people coming down their corridors because of that brand name because it's still viewed as like the only old world store in New York to shop at. You come to New York as almost like a story tourist destination for that brand um, um, recognition. So that well, still think, plays I think along my, those lines. My only point is that I think American brands do have a lot of brand recognition. I mean, the Western world, the idea of American fashion is revered all over the world, in Europe, in Asia, in oh, Africa. But Ameri- you, you blanketed it now. You're like, American fashion? <laughs> you, 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 didn't, you didn't go into a brand. You didn't go into I a did. sensibility. I did. I said Calvin Klein. I said Ralph and Tommy and Michael Kors. Mark Jacobs and and Zach Posen are, I don't know if you would consider them quite of a different generation, but there are these big American iconic brands that have name recognition, but didn't, they're not playing the game right. Whether it's a fashion game or an American fashion game is up to them to discern, but there's something amiss in the relevancy with all of those components that you've attributed to European brands. There's definitely name recognition. Who doesn't know who Calvin Klein is? Well, I, you know, something that I'm thinking about in this conversation as well is that if we're advising as two marketeers, if we're advising companies, American companies specifically, on their reinvention in this age, where where are we taking them? You know, based on our observation, based on our tracking of the industry and the to the the minute changes, where are we advising these brands? What kind of move are we advising these brands to take in this current age? Do you have that confidence? Do you have the confidence that you can help to steer? And you're in fact working for an American brand right now. You know that that has to sort of like uh, um, navigate some of these waters for sure and established in 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 selling direct to consumer in in snaring market share in brand recognition and so on and so forth how do you go about that in this age my overall thought as it pertains to american fashion is 
I don't think it's a bad thing what's happening. I think the market is determining who wins and succeeds and who doesn't. And as you know, I largely think that fashion needs a huge edit. So I wouldn't be, like if I was like at the helm of fashion, I would be telling some people to close up shop to just make space for others because there are too many brands. And I think that we are now at a point in the market and the landscape where the market is, is reacting to that. So we do, do we need 10 Alexander Wangs? Do we need 17 Rag and Bones? Incidentally, and so, Alexander Wang hadn't yet come up. I'm glad you mentioned Alexander Wang also forecasted to be a future leader in this business. Not really materializing now, is it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's also quite specific because his he's still kind of relevant, but I think he had a lot of egg on his face after the whole but yeah, Balenciaga five-minute at the helm business and came back to something that maybe knocked his confidence or, I mean, he seems to be finding some sort of footing now, but I don't know. I think there's a number of factors there. But if nothing else that's reinforcing this conversation, Henrietta, is that there has been a lot of demise. I'm sorry to come back to that, but when I'm looking at the body bag of designers that that sort of have uh, come about in the last, like, say, five years, in the last three years for that matter, I think it's a really bad percentage. Yeah, the more that we talk about it, if I'm honest, before I didn't really understand your, your point of view about, um, I guess, the governing body, whether it's the CFDA, whether it's a Vogue, whether it's an Anna Winter, whether it's that clique of decision makers or gatekeepers. But now, the more I think about it, the one thing that American fashion has more than any other country or continent in fashion is a bit more of a governing body that architects the trajectory and careers of a lot of these brands and designers. So yeah, yeah, I think (laughs) now that that stronghold is loosening, it's a bit of a free market. The market will decide, but also to our point last episode about influencers, you have to kind of be about something. It's not just enough to put out a sneaker and slap your logo on it. So I'm optimistic because I think between the market deciding, between really having to be about something and finding a path that isn't dictated by one of our kind of arbiters and gatekeepers, you win or you lose. And I don't think that editing is a bad thing. I don't think everyone needs to survive. That's not everyone's future because also... Zach Posen, is, isn't he still the creative director of Brooks Brothers? Yes, yeah. It was like I was saying about influencers. Not everyone has to make stuff and put more things into the world. <laughs> Some of these designers would make incredible creative directors and CEOs that could revive a gap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that could make a J. Crew relevant. So it's not really, I think that the shifts in the musical chairs and fashion also isn't a bad thing. So, uh, you know, my blanket kind of advice would be, to, you know, explore strategies, live in real time. And the musical chairs of fashion is is good. I think who's going to revive uh, an icon like a Ralph Lauren? Is it a Virgil or a Phoebe Philo? Who's going to revive a gap in American institution? They're not going to do it by themselves. So maybe you you make you make space in one area and you lend your talents in another area. And then there are just fewer brands. There's more diversity in point of view and fashion rigor and and American fashion, the demise of American fashion isn't a new concept. People have been talking about 
New York Fashion Week, for instance, being the weakest, the least edited, the most overwhelming. The most commercial. The most commercial that has clothes. It's just product and lacking in point of view. So I think, is there something in general that we can do about American fashion with, again, making space and, you know, designers trying to be at the helm of brands that are iconic and could do with reviving? Like, I think all of those approaches are scary, but also could be good and exciting and well, I, I want to weigh in on this, you know, how do you advise companies going forward, fashion brands going forward? Well, one thing I think we can, we may both agree on, uh, based on what you just said, is that we're at a turning point, that things going forward are being done differently and will continue to be done differently. So uh, if, I, if I'm advising a, an American fashion company, I'm going to, I want to devise an original script based on, I mean, it should always be done anyway, but devise an original script based on the values of that company and based on the the modernized tools that we currently have in order to reach an audience and, and message to an audience and sell product and so on and so forth. But what I will say is that this time, and I, I, I think this conversation came out of this 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 shifting period that this there's something there's a change right now that whatever we thought of the formula or the formula that was leveled say a decade ago 20 years ago whatever the case may be that if if there was a time that a change is taking that uh, is taking place that this is the time that one needs to reevaluate those strategies one re- need to reevaluate the script that's been sort of doled out thus far and really we have to approach things very differently i can't say this is a blanket answer for all the fashion American but i think we're going to i think we're going to we're going to do that because i think american fashion also looks different now and i think we're embracing that i mean we've spent this entire episode talking about largely white male designers and i think that there's more women to talk about there's more designers of color to talk about. There's more designers from the larger community of the LGBTQ plus community to talk about. There are more marginalized voices to talk about. And I think that in and of itself is something that is going to really lend itself to the fabric of American fashion because we're not really talking about that same archetype, which I think, again, how many white men or or white women can you really talk about in the same saturated space? So I think that the diversifying of fashion is also going to help identify American fashion and make it a thing again. You know, you've got Pierre Moss, Chris John Rogers, you've got so many other exciting designers to to talk about. And while we can't predict their trajectory, I think that they're going to shape a lot of what's happening here. And um, and we'll be watching that space. There's no doubt we will revisit this American designer conversation. And uh, we look forward to your comments on this subject. Thank you. Uh, it's my time for something.